Welcome to the Get Heard with Ian Roth podcast, where it is our mission to enable leaders to effectively engage and motivate their audience through written and verbal communication. Hey, everybody, what's going on? This is Ian from the Get Heard podcast. Have an awesome episode today with Dr. Stanley Ward, who is a has a doctorate in leadership and all this other great stuff and is a subject matter expert, not only on leadership, but burnouts. And it's actually what we talk uh, about today, mostly with some other things in there, but some ways to identify burnouts and then combat burnouts. I have it, you probably have it, and Dr. Ward is going to help us combat it and make sure that we don't get there. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Get Heard podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Stanley J. Ward, and he's the founder and principal of Influence Coaching LLC, where he helps leaders develop needed relational and conceptual skills so that they can succeed both at work and at home. Dr. Stanley Ward, how are you doing this morning? I am rocking. How are you, Ian? I'm doing great. And I had to look at the time because I do a lot of my interviews like at night. So, But it is still morning, at least at the time of this interview. And you're joining us from Texas, right? That is correct, from East Texas. So if you know where Dallas is, imagine taking a drive about 90 minutes due east, and you'll be in my neighborhood. Outstanding. Texas is a heck of a state, like we kind of spoke about before the show. Hope to get down there at least one time, maybe if it's even just visiting. But uh, you know, the, it just seems like such a cool place to be. It is. Yeah, there's a lot of good people down here. That's great. Well, again, thanks so much for being on the show, taking time out of your morning on a Saturday to do this. And and I wanted to kind of have today's conversation revolve around the difference between burning out and being worn out and as leaders and as followers, you know, how we can kind of do our best to prevent being burned out and worn out. So I know just kind of going over the awesome kind of press kit you sent me, you have a book actually called how to how to beat burnout for yourself your family and your team do you mind telling us a little bit about that yeah so um i'm also a leadership educator so i've got a phd in leadership studies and uh, teach in that field and a little over a year ago i was wrapping up a textbook on ethical leadership and trying to think okay what's the next issue i want to address um and my mentor coach was working with me and I realized that the kind of leaders I enjoy coaching and working with are those who care really deeply and they work really hard. And as I began to dive into the kind of things that affect those leaders, I realized, oh my gosh, all of this connects to burnout. And then I began to reflect on other leaders I'd worked with previously. I thought, oh my gosh, they were dealing with some stage of burnout in their careers as well. So with that background, then I I started doing research on uh, both the social science side of it, as well as the applied side of it in the coaching work that I do. Okay. Well, that's great. And I have to ask you why, with all that being said, you know, what, what drew you to the topic of burning out and, you know, preventing burning out? <laughs> well, I, because I'm prone to it as well. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a couple things. So, you know, we were joking earlier about at uh, Texas and talking about there's a lot of good folks down here. There are a lot of really cool leaders that I've gotten to work with over the years, doing a lot of neat things in the community or in their businesses. And one of the things I find that's common for these folks and common for my own story as well is it's like we're pole vaulters. Okay, so here, picture this pole vaulter. You run it along, plants the pole, 
you know, just about to get over the bar and looks and says, you know what, if I can get over this, it must not be that hard. So I'm going to hold on to my pole with one hand, grab the bar with the other, try to raise it up so I can, so I can really accomplish something while I'm up here in midair. Well, well, that's a recipe for a wreck, right? So to learn to manage that drive that helps you be a great leader while also not, you know, doing damage to yourself or those around you. Those are some of the kind of things that, that drew me into this space. Does that help? Yeah, it definitely does. And I'm just, I'm kind of reflecting on that. And, you know, I, I experienced this kind of, I don't, maybe I'm experiencing it now. And, you know, super motivated. And as a lot of leaders are, you're super motivated. And it's, it's, often hard to see sometimes that those around you may not be as motivated as, as you are. I mean, it doesn't mean they're bad people. It doesn't mean that they're not motivated period, but maybe that they're not as motivated as you are and you need to do your best to realize that and kind of, you know, pump the brakes a little bit to, in, in an attempt to not have your team around you burn out. What do you think? Yeah. So let me give you a, another metaphor, a couple of metaphors to help with that. So, uh, think, Think of everything as kind of raw material, right? So when you talk about someone being more motivated than another person or having more capability than another person, more capacity than another person, all of us have are made of different kinds of raw material, right? And so what we know is certain raw material can handle heavy loads better than others, right? So part of this is being aware of what's the raw material that makes me up? What's the raw material that this other person has? And from a Again, from a leadership perspective, we can think in terms of strengths, weaknesses, and liabilities, and, and how do all those work together to carry a load? Another illustration I use is that we have to be aware of the engine that runs us. And so some of us have what I call a diesel engine, right? So a diesel engine essentially uh, is able to carry really heavy loads at a low R, you know, RPM, right? It doesn't rev up high. It doesn't make a lot of noise and sort of lubricates itself in the process. So it's, it's a really effective engine for carrying these heavy loads. Other people have a, a gasoline engine, meaning the same load, they're gonna go, you know, maybe make a lot of noise. And it's not that they're, again, they're, it's not that they're incapable or something, it's just a different engine that they're running with. That's a great metaphor. And the first thing I think of to ask you is, as leaders, once we, realize different our, our, our team members fall in those different categories i mean perhaps we could spread the workload accordingly so maybe a longer term project that isn't as i don't want to say important but you know you have more time to do it maybe give those to the diesel engine folks whereas you know maybe you have a short project a project with a short suspense give that to the gasoline engine type yeah. folks what do you think? I think that's great yeah thinking in terms of sprinters and marathon runners right they're both very capable athletes and so give your short, quick project to your sprinters and understand that those longer projects that have a heavier burden to them, you want to give to the marathon runners. I, I like that. That's good. Yeah. Well, thank you. I just thought of it kind of on the top of my head and how, I guess if you're, if you're a leader, then how do you evaluate, you know, I kind of think of performance reviews. If I have to do those annually for someone, how can we maintain an objective, kind of outlook on, on comparing those two folks as leaders. Do you have any suggestions for that since they're so different? You know what I mean? 
Oh yeah, totally. So I'm, I'm thinking of a organization I worked with to create a mid-level management team. So this was a, a small business that was growing and they wanted to add another layer to their leadership team and their management process. And so one of the things we did is we started with uh, the, the Gallup Strengths Finder program to help both the business owner and that gr group of managers be aware of, okay, what are the strengths individually and the strengths for the team? What are the weaknesses and what are the liabilities? And, and let me explain what I mean about liabilities versus weaknesses. You know, strengths are those things that uh, you, can, you can lean on, you can count on under stress. Uh, they energize you. They just, the, the places where you're really effective and you really get good stuff done. The weaknesses are those things in your life that are just, they're just less than ideal. And then the liabilities are the things that actually prevent you from doing what you need to do. So the liabilities we got to fix, the weaknesses we got to make peace with. And then the strengths we do our best to enjoy and make the most of, right? So once we were clear on this, we were able to start looking at the responsibilities of the team and start going, okay, where are the things that we really need to take corrective action? And then where are the things that maybe we need to reassign a little bit, restructure a little bit? And then we added to that a layer of communication processes. Um, I'm a big fan of the Thomas Kilman conflict mode inventory. I don't know if you're familiar with that tool or not, where we talk no, about, actually. okay, maybe we can get there later. Sure. Uh, and talking about some different communication processes then to help make that happen. Okay. And what, uh, what are some of those communication processes I have to ask? Yeah. Well, okay. Maybe I shouldn't use the term process. I really should start with style. So what the Thomas Kilman material does is he's got a conflict mode indicator or inventory, excuse me. And essentially the, the Thomas Kilman work says, and this goes back to the 1970s. So it's, it's, it's been used for a while, but I find it really helpful. Maybe that's because I also go back to the 1970s. Um, <laughs> he basically says that we can think of all conflict as essentially two things bumping up against each other, you know, concern for self and concern for the other. Or I put it in terms of there's my agenda and there's your agenda, right? And so when we're aware of how effective we are at addressing these two things, then we realize what, what communication style we're engaging in during conflict, right? So if I'm only addressing my agenda, not addressing your agenda, that's what they call the competitive style. And essentially that's I win, you lose. Okay. And then you can, and there are times for that, by the way, no one style is always right. Uh, if the building's on fire, it's not time to take a vote and talk about our feelings. Right. Right. It's some, the fire marshal shows up and we do what the guy says. On the other hand, you could have someone who, does not address my agenda or your agenda. And that's lose-lose. That's the avoiding style. And so you can think of times that, that you've maybe been in conflict and you've just said, man, I'm just walking away from this. I'm not going to deal with what I want. I'm not going to deal with what you want. It's just too much. And there are actually times where that's appropriate. We were talking earlier about our kids and, uh, you know, I've got teenage daughters. They're beautiful young women. And I know at certain times um, when they're really upset, it's not a good time for me to point out what's wrong and what they're thinking, <laughs> sure. right? This is not a conversation about logic right now. I just need to be present and show them uh, just genuine affection and and listen. And then later we can circle back and, you know, figure out what we need to do here. And so avoiding is appropriate as long as you set a time to return to the issue. If you avoid too long, of course, problems just build up, right? 
Then there's the side where we say, okay, I'll deal with your agenda, but I won't deal with mine. And that's accommodating. And sometimes in customer service, we certainly have to be in that space. But the problem with accommodating, and some people think of that as servant leadership. It's not servant leadership. If you stay in that, that's martyr leadership because <laughs> your needs are never going to get met. Right. And it's going to build up resentment in the organization. And then we have, of course, the kind of win-win model where we say, okay, I'm going to deal with my agenda. We're going to deal with your agenda. And that's the collaborative space. And the negative of collaboration is it takes a lot of time and energy and takes a lot of communication skill. It takes the longest. And I, I guess you could compare that to if the building's on fire, sitting down and taking a vote, kind of like you mentioned earlier. It, exactly. Yeah. And so that's why they have a fifth style compromise. <laughs> I win a little, I, I lose a little. You win a little, you lose a little. Right. And so when you're short on time and trying to do your best to be in a more collaborative space, uh, then you're going to compromise. So with 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 that awareness of their tendencies, because all of us have a preferred style with that awareness of their tendencies, the awareness of, OK, what styles are going to serve us in these situations with an awareness of the raw material of the team to kind of bring that metaphor back in of strengths, weaknesses and liabilities. Now we can start talking about, all right, how do we really get done really get stuff done effectively and do it in a way where we are aware of both my needs and your needs. Those are excellently said. And my wife introduced me to the Enneagram types. Are you familiar with any? Oh yeah. Yeah. We love those. Those are fun. So, so yeah. And I'm thinking as, as you're telling me all this great stuff as an eight, like I'm an Enneagram eight, which is called the challenger. You know, I, I, I tend to put myself first. So, as I became made aware of that, I do my best to try to not be the not be the first kind of type of person you mentioned where I only always put my needs over others, but also like go for the middle ground, I guess, like the win-win scenario. But it's been challenging, but it's something I've at least identified and I'm working to get better. No, that's cool. May, may I give you a, a tool for that? Sure. Yeah. So when we do these uh, communication workshops with organizations, one of the tools we get to is this very simple statement of here's what I need from you. What do you need from me? Because that simple conversation starter addresses both my needs and your needs. And that's what you're trying to get to make space for my needs, make space for your needs. We can negotiate. Um, but if you just come in here saying, here's what I need, that's when you're in that competitive driver space. And yeah, that's that's the eight challenger not making space for the other. Definitely. And that's, here's what I need from you. What do you need from me? Yeah, I think that's a fair question and gets both parties to kind of put what, what they want on the table and make it clear. Yeah. And even think about, you know, delegating. Okay, here's what I need you to accomplish. What do you need for me to get it done? Right. And interesting in my my current job as a, in the military it's often i don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately but it's it's just here's what i need from you and like i i don't really sometimes i do ask what do you need from me what can i do to help you get to where i need you to get i think that might be more applicable in the military situation but yeah you know I, i'm here to help you guys but here's my expectations of what i need you guys to accomplish next yeah. And there's a ton of variations of that, of those questions. I mean, you can say, here's what I need you to accomplish. What resources do you need to do it? Okay. That's, that's the formula at work. Yeah, definitely. I think you hit the nail right on the head. So even if you're in a more, I don't want to say dictator, dictatorship or well, hierarchical, hierarchical, hierarchical. Yeah. Right. You can still, you can still ask your subordinates or your team that question 
And granted, you're not going to do something directly for them, but just like you said, you know, what resources can I provide? What help can I give you to help you get to where I need you to go? That's a great point. Yeah. And that goes back to knowing the diesel engine, the gasoline engine, all that kind of thing. Right. So maybe the resources are time. Um, you know, maybe the resources are additional staff, if that's an option. I mean, I, you know, so many things there, right? Training. Training is a good one. Training is a good one. Maybe your team is undertrained and in their current state, they, they can't get there. So you need to provide that additional training or guidance or instruction for them. I, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, a long time ago, I, I got, I think I came across this maybe even in, in John Maxwell or something. Um, but this idea that you want to think when you, when you have a problem, you want to think in terms of people and processes. And if you have good people in place, then start with assuming the problem's a process problem rather than getting frustrated with your people. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah. And processes. Oh, are... and by the way, that's going to help with burnout. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if you want to start circling so. back around. Well, okay. On a couple places. So one is... Um, one of the things we see that correlates with burnout is when people feel micromanaged, it starts to push them into that burnout space. Okay. And then we also know that part of burnout is about uh, being withdrawn from people and becoming cynical of them. So you can think of as a boss, if you just look at your team and you feel like they're incompetent, okay, you're entering into a burnout space with that cynicism. So the, the research that I draw on in my, my coaching work addressing burnout is called the Maslach Burnout Inventory. Christine Maslach uh, does this work coming out of the 1980s, starting with service providers, uh, social service folks, also dealing with teachers and looking at doctors, lawyers, all these different professions that are in a service industry. And essentially what she found is that there are three dimensions to burnout. Burnout and worn out are not the same, in other words. Uh, so again, let's go to the engine metaphor. So think of when you run your car engine without gasoline, what happens? Well, it's going to go bah, 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 sputter and it's done, right? And in order to get it going again, you just have to add gas. Okay. That's worn out. You're just tired. You need rest. You need to be refreshed, refueled, and you can go again. Burnout is you're running that same engine without oil. And the problem there is that that engine can keep running for a while, but it's damaging itself in the process, right? Until eventually the engine breaks. And so when people are in that state of burnout, they're, they're out of the resources they need, but they're still just chugging along and they're doing damage to themselves and possibly others in the organization. That, that's, wow, running out of oil. That, that's true. They're still going, but they're doing more damage than good. That's, how can we help those people identify that they need to stop if they're so kind of in it and getting after what their, their job is? How, how do we help them see that, get them to stop and kind of take a tactical pause. Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm thinking the, uh, it's the whole, uh, look at the log in your own eye before you look for the splinter in someone else's principle. Okay. <laughs> so first leader, check yourself. Where are you at on this stuff? Um, you know, one of the things I like about the leadership practices inventory is one of their first principles for leadership is model the way. So leader, if you're burned out and you're trying to call it somebody else's burnout, it's not going to go well. That's fair. So one of the tools I use for folks is I just 
sit with folks and we talk about, okay, hey, let's talk about the difference between burnout and worn out and let's figure out where you're at on this. And I can, I can explain that process if you'd like. Yeah, sure, please. Okay. Well, okay, so here's a story for you. So again, we talked about our, our kids earlier. Um, and, and by the way, I, my leadership coaching process is to focus on the skills that serve you both at work and home so you can be successful in both places. So that's why I'm going to have both uh, professional stories and home stories here. But as I was developing my, my coaching model around burnout, my oldest daughter was a senior in high school. It was a spring semester. And so she comes to me and she's like, oh, dad, I'm just so burned out. I was like, oh, fascinating. You should say that. I've been working on this. Would you be interested? Would you be open to a conversation? In fact, I'll tell you what, I'll take you to, uh, to BJ's and buy you a bazooki. And if you don't know what a bazooki is, it's like this big uh, cookie with ice cream on top of it. She loves it. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to have a daddy daughter date. I mean, this thing's working on so many levels now. Um, so we get Pazuki daddy daughter date, and I get a chance to test some of this burnout stuff I've been working on. And so I explained to her that, that there are three dimensions to burnout. The first one is emotional exhaustion, which is where you're just worn out yet. You're still having to move, keep moving forward. And so it's, it's, you're just in the negative zone in a sense. The second is depersonalization. It's where we disconnect from people, where we feel disconnected from purpose. It's where we're feeling cynical. And the third is, uh, I'm going to use the term ineffectiveness. Uh, the Maslach research flips it and talks about lack of personal effectiveness. But essentially, it's ineffectiveness, right? That when you're the hamster on the wheel, just running, 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 and you have nothing to show for it. So we started there. So we, def we defined those. We said, hey, let's create a 10-point spectrum here because what we know from the burnout research is that burnout is a spectrum. All of us are on the spectrum somewhere, and it's just a question of if we're in a healthy place or not. So we used the, the bottom of the spectrum, the zero of the 10-point scale, if you will, as emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, ineffectiveness. And then I said, hey, so tell me, what is the exact opposite of emotional exhaustion for you? And she she described what that state looks like for her. And I said, okay, let's look at the exact opposite of being disconnected from people and purpose. What does that look like for you? So she described that. And then I said, okay, what's the exact opposite of feeling ineffectiveness? And she described that. So, um, so now we have this 10 point scale and we've calibrated it. And then we basically said, okay, where are you on this? And in looking at it, what we realized together was, okay, she was in a state of emotional exhaustion that was pretty high on her scale or low, I should say, because we put emotional exhaustion at the bottom of it. But the ineffectiveness and the depersonalization, she wasn't feeling so much. So, OK, so the situation is worn out. Now, what can we do about that? So with that, we made a couple adjustments to her schedule and, and she deserved to be worn out. I mean, she's uh, she was a senior, uh, really active in school, spring musical, a lot of other stuff going on. So, you know, we made some adjustments to her schedule. Uh, at the time, she she kind of got in this habit of staying up till two, three in the morning doing homework. We adjusted that, <laughs> and uh, it made a difference. Well, that's great. So it was that was. I, I can't wait till my daughters are older and I can sit down and do that kind of stuff with them because that sounds fascinating. And oh, it's cool. Bravo for doing that. Yeah, I, I, that's awesome. And I've, you know, I've worked with folks and we've realized, oh, the real issue here, here is cynicism, depersonalization. I'm disconnected from mission in the organization. I'm disconnecting from people. Okay, let's talk about that. Let's go to work on that. Um, you know, I like to, I, I used to be a humanities teacher. And so one of the things I learned teaching humanities is the basic difference between a tragic story and a comic story is not that one is funny and the other sad. It's that comic stories end in community, tragic stories end in isolation. 
So I'm always trying to encourage both myself, my family, and those I work with, hey, let's figure out how to live a comic story rather than a tragic I, I never would have looked at those two genres that way, but yeah, that, that is very true. I'm uh, just kind of thinking back quickly in my head through those types of stories. Um, yeah, it's a great way to look at it. One ends in isolation, one, one ends in a joining of a community. You, you said depersonalization a couple times, and you, I think you alluded to a definition of it, but what, what do you define as depersonalization, just so it's clear for the listeners? Yeah, thanks for asking. So think of disconnect. To be disconnected from people, to be disconnected from purpose, and often it expresses itself in a growing cynicism. Okay, what is, man, I, maybe I am depersonalizing myself, <laughs> how I'm feeling about life. So I, I do like being away from people sometimes. I think there's a healthy way to do that, you know, especially if you're around people all the time for your job, you know, you have a busy family, love both of them to death, but... I suppose there is a healthy amount of disconnection we can do. Is that right? Oh, totally. And and I get into that in the book. There's a section that talks about the difference between depersonalization and introversion. Because I'm on the introverted scale. I I'm I'm a I like people. I really do, but they just make me tired. Doggone it. So I have to get away. I'm really good with ideas. Um, I like I like to joke that staying up in my head is like going to a vacation in Disney. Oh man, you didn't you didn't laugh. Maybe it's not a good joke. But anyways, no, oh. I have a big smile on my face because like. So my wife will give me a hard time. Like I'll go for a run sometimes and she runs also. She always has to have music and like I go four or five mile runs and she's like, well, what, how don't you have music? Like what, what's wrong with you? That's like demented. Hmm. You know, messed up. I'm like, I, I just alone in my thoughts is just so nice. Like, you know what I mean? Just basically what you said in my own head. It's like, yes, going to Disneyland. I didn't find it funny because it's so true. That's yeah. Okay. Why. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Here's yeah. So yesterday I'm on my bicycle uh, we, I, we've got a, a bicycle trail near where I live and, you know, been an hour and a half riding that trail. And it's the same thing, man. I, I listened to a little bit of a podcast, but then I was like, man, I just, I just want to think and I just want to enjoy nature. And, and by the way, getting out into nature is another way to help deal with that emotional exhaustion and, uh, you know, some of that depersonalization. It, it does help center us and reconnect us. But anyway, point. Okay, so uh, introversion. Yeah, so I'm more on the introverted side, and so when I'm thinking about depersonalization, I'm looking for: Are there changes here? Am I am I increasingly withdrawing, or worse yet, am I numbing? You know, when I have that glass of wine at the end of night, end of the night, uh, is this about just chilling out and enjoying, celebrating a good day, or is this about me numbing myself? What am I really doing here? And if I'm numbing and I'm not resting and I'm not celebrating then I need to be careful because I'm starting to move into that depersonalization space. That, that is a good point. And, you know, for what kind of wine do you drink, by the way? Are you a sweet or dry kind of wino? Uh, it's funny. So, yeah, I have a very unsophisticated palate. I grew up in small town, Oklahoma. So, uh, you know, the redder, the better. That's all I know. Okay. Yeah, but that, that's good that you can at least realize, you know, why am I drinking this, to numb or to relax? And I, I've seen a lot of people... They go home, they have like one, two, three, four shots of whiskey at the end of the night. And at that point, and I've actually asked a couple of, a couple of these people, like, why, why are you doing that? Is it to wind down and relax? Or are you trying to escape from something? And so, some of the people I've asked that, I see something click in their head and the others, they just kind of you know try to blow it off. But that, that, that's a great perspective when it comes to 
alcohol at least. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you, somehow you kind of you're talking about this reminds me too. I had a conversation with a guy one time we were going through this model and uh, he was a leader of a nonprofit organization doing really significant work out here. And when we were talking about what is the opposite of emotional exhaustion for you, he said, Stan, I can't even consider that. I have no idea what that would be for me. I can't even imagine it. Wow. Yeah. So that tells you something. Yeah. No kidding. That is, wow. That's powerful. The, uh, so I think provided some great insight for burnout and I never really realized that there was a difference between burning out and being worn out. So I have, I took copious notes, not only for myself, but that I'm going to have in the show notes also. And kind of one second and final topic I wanted to dive into a little bit with you is how, how can followers become leaders? People who have never been in leadership roles before but maybe are, are moving up their organization or their team. What are some of the key things that those folks can do to change and transform from followers into leaders? Yeah. So I, um, I think of leadership in terms of leadership is a process where you have a leader who has a goal working with a group of followers to achieve that goal. Right? So anytime that a person moves into the space where they are working with others to achieve a goal. They're starting to move into leadership space, especially if they're influencing that process, right? Uh, there's a, a gentleman named Ira Chaliff who wrote a book called The Courageous Follower. And it's just beautiful, beautiful work. I'm a huge fan of his work. And he says that courageous followers engage in two different types of behaviors for their leaders. They engage in both supporting behaviors. In other words, when the leader is being true to the mission of the organization, they do everything they can to support the leader and they engage in challenging behaviors. When the leader is not being true to the purpose of the organization, they're able to ask questions. I mean, it's, it's not just direct disobedience, but there are things that a person can do to, uh, to help repoint or to help point back to the purpose and make sure that's really guiding everything we do. And so to the extent that, that followers begin to develop those kind of, of behaviors, they develop those skills in their, that area, they inevitably become leaders because they are influencing others as you move toward a goal. Yeah. Yeah. They are influencing others. And I never, I've observed those behaviors before, but I never kind of pinned the rose on that. That's what they were that so you can be supportive and then you can be, I guess, respectfully challenging. You see something or just ask questions really, I guess. Could yeah. Be as challenging. If nothing else, just clarifying questions help, right? Okay, if we do this, this is the likely consequence. Is that what we want? I mean, that is a that's a challenging behavior, but a, an appropriate one, right? It's 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 not threatening. Sure, even so much as to asking why. I need you to do this, and someone asks, "Well, why? Why do we need to do this right now? Or yeah. why do I need to do it this way?" And, 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 and a better way to ask why? Help me understand. That's a great way. Again, why why can be off putting? It can be it challenging. Can. So to say, okay, so help me understand. Help me understand if I do X, uh, we are trying to get to Y or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons I like Ira Chalice's work is because he puts purpose at the center of the leader follower relationship, purpose of the organization. And so that's what guides, guides both. So purpose. when the follower is not being true to the purpose of the organization, the leader steps in, redirects, right? Uh, it does what the leader needs to do in these cases. 
And then when the leader's not being true to the purpose of the organization, the leader or the follower, excuse me, also has responsibilities there. And I, and I believe that's how you get to have a healthy, ethical organization is through that kind of leader follower dynamic. So followers aren't just implementers of the leader's will. Right. Everybody, all parties involved need to, if they understand the purpose, they can, and as long as they're acting within the scope of that purpose or to get to that purpose or maintain that purpose. Yeah. I, th I think that creates an effective leadership team and organization. Yeah. So I also do some coaching around organization values. And I, I find that those kind of conversations where we clarify purpose and values, what are we doing? Why do we do it? What do we really care about? Those are really healthy conversations and they empower followers then to step into more of a leadership role. And I'll tell you this about values too. You know, the values talk is, is, is usually just uh, smoke unless you can point to how you have sacrificed something for that value. Because you, if, if something's valuable, you have to pay for it. And so, sure. you know, organization, if you say we value people, but you can't show how you made sacrifices for the sake of your people, I'm not sure you really value people. True. Very true point. You know, we value people, but, you know, we have some of the worst turnover in our industry. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. That, that for a couple of companies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Without uh, Yeah. You've got me thinking of stories, but I probably not appropriate to share my gear right now. So I'm sure, going to stop sure. <laughs> I'm putting the brakes on that. <laughs> I, I can only imagine, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Purpose. And if you say that something is important to you and that you value it, there needs to be, I don't want to say pain associated, but with a, a cost that you have paid to achieve. Yeah. Show me what. Monetarily or time or, or Exactly. Yeah. If I'm not putting resources into this value in some measurable way that I can really show you're not valuing it. It's just gas. And, and, it, and this is, uh, you know, this is why people get resentful of mission statements and stuff like that. Because a lot of times it is just gas. It is. It's just something painted on the wall that you look at and snicker because you know how untrue it is at your, at your level in the organization. Yeah. But, but when the leader can step in and say, let me tell you this example of how, you know, we followed this value of how this value changed the way I made a decision. I wanted to do X but because we value people. We did Y, <laughs> you know, those, sure. those kind of stories now show that, that we really do have uh, for lack of term, you know, skin in the game or, uh, you know, it's kind of the put up or shut up type stuff. Right. Put up or shut up. Well, that was really the last question and topic I wanted to get into with you, uh, Dr. Ward. But uh, again, thank you so much for being on the show. And I want you to, Tell the listeners where they can check you out, and I will make sure that I link those in the show notes. Where can they go to find you? Yeah, the easiest way to connect is stanleyjward.com. There they'll find links to the books I've written. There's a contact form. Uh, there's links to my coaching business and even a recording of me playing ukulele and singing along with my daughters. So uh, that's that's the easiest way to connect me. Stanley J. Ward, S-T-A-N-L-E-Y-J-W-A-R-D.com. I was saying, what song were you singing with your daughters? I have oh, ask. yeah. So, uh, where the streets have no name. Oh, no, wait. I'm sorry. I still, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Sorry. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Yeah. You too. You're, are you a big U2 fan? Yeah. So, um, in the ninth grade is when the Joshua Tree album released. And I was liking them before Joshua Tree. So, my, I had a buddy uh, named. Before they were cool. Yeah. 
Well, they, well, nah, hang on. Let's let's get better terms. <laughs> they were always cool. It's just that they weren't necessarily widely received until Joshua Tree. I mean, eighty-seven, I think. Yes, correct. So, yeah, eighty-six or eighty-seven, somewhere in there. Um, yeah. So, like, I was driving with my fifteen-year-old last night. We're in the car, and we we've got Sirius XM right now. Is doing a, a YouTube channel, and uh, she, she was listening to one of their songs pre-Joshua Tree album songs. And she was like, man, dad, these guys were so ahead of their time. I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> I raised you right. That's right. And we also listen to the Beatles channel sometimes and we do Beatles trivia. I'll, I'll pop quiz them on who's singing what. No kidding. Wow. So I was raised on classic rock uh, from my dad, you, like pre-YouTube and I got into 80s music and huge YouTube fan also. But I hope that like when my girls and my son are older, I can like talk about like Blink-182 and like how this was so ahead of its time for stuff and I hope they can respect it and appreciate it. But they probably won't. That might be too lofty of goals for me. You know, I feel like my job as dad is to uh, help baptize them into pop culture trivia. So, uh, no. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. So, yeah, my kids are going to go off. To, my kids are at college. They, they're they going to know their Beatles stuff. They're, they're going to... Good. Yep. And that will... Heck... I think there, there are a lot of kids in, at least when I went to college about 10 plus years ago, like the, there was a big Beatles resurgence at, at my campus. People like the Beatles and I think they'll be in good company. Yeah. And, and again, just watching the arc of the Beatles journey as well. You talk about comedy, tragedy and all those kind of things. I, I think there's a lot of lessons there and, and a lot of, uh, as well as examples of creativity and, just all kinds of stuff. Yeah, they're fun. I, I was 16. When I was 16, I bought a guitar and a Beatles songbook. That's how I taught myself to play guitar. That's great. That's so great. But yeah, you too. Listeners, if you are a millennial or someone younger than I am, you got to check out YouTube Joshua Tree. I think that album went platinum in like 48 or 36 hours, something like that. <laughs> yeah. A huge, one, like one of probably the best rock pop albums ever recorded. So check it out. Well, hey, Dr. Ward, thank you so much for being on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure. And I, again, I'll have all the links for where listeners can find you in the show notes. And stay safe out there, sir. I appreciate it. Yeah, do the same. And I look forward to connecting with your listeners. Thank you for the opportunity.